And hello, everybody. Welcome to a special edition of Narrative Live. I'm not really supposed to be here. We're on hiatus doing a lot of interesting work on our upcoming season, which we'll tell you about a little bit later on. But I couldn't resist just dropping in to say hi because I miss you guys. Uh, we have a very special edition tonight of the show because one of my favorite episodes that we ever did on narrative following January the 6th was an interview we did with Ann Nelson and Dave Troy about her work, mostly from her book, Shadow Network, which is all about CNP, the Council for National Policy, and how their agenda was reshaping America. Now, this interview took place in, in March 2021 and, uh, you know, not so far long away from there. And already in July of, of 22, we're already seeing the remaking of America in tremendous amounts in terms of uh, Christian nationalism and in terms of the abortion legislation and in terms of what the Supreme Court has been doing. So it just shows you how quickly things have been moving since January 6th last year and then all the way through to this year. A couple of quick uh, programming notes and other things to say to you first. Thank you very much to those of you who've uh, stepped up and contributed to our next season. We still have a budget shortfall for next season, but we continue to hope that you'll uh, help us raise the money to continue to do narrative uh, starting in the middle of August or at the very latest in September, depending on how the budget works out. Um, you'll see in tonight's program exactly why narrative provides the kind of service that no one else does. Because, you know, in, in March of 2021, we were talking about the stuff that uh, the CNP were doing in ways that you maybe are hearing now on mainstream television on Christian, when you hear Rachel Maddow talk about Christian nationalism you last night, you know, that's the kind of stuff we were talking about last year in March. So um, not to put any, uh, any dampeners on Rachel or, or any criticisms on Rachel. She's obviously terrific. Um, so that's great that you're supporting us. We do need you to join more if you could. And you can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative. There's a lot of news, of course, in the news today as well. We've been hearing from none other than Mary Garland about his intention to prosecute everyone involved in January the 6th. He, was, uh, he did an interview on NBC Nightly News tonight. This is what he had to say. This is Mary Garland. You said in no uncertain terms the other day that no one is above the law. <laughs> that said, um, the indictment of a former president, of a perhaps candidate for president, would arguably tear the country apart. Is that your concern as you make your decision down the road here? Do you have to think about things like that? Look, we pursue justice without fear or favor. We intend to hold everyone, anyone, who was criminally responsible for the events surrounding January 6th, for any attempt to interfere with the lawful transfer of power from one administration to another, accountable. That's what we do. We don't pay any attention to other uh, issues with respect to that. So if Donald Trump were to become a candidate for president again, that would not change your schedule or, or how you move forward or don't move forward? Uh -huh. Say again that uh, we will hold accountable anyone who is criminally responsible for attempting to interfere with the transfer, legitimate lawful transfer of power from one administration to the next. Well, you could listen to that over and over again and think it was the same clip. I mean, he, he actually just repeats himself and he's doing that for good reason. It seems they really want to get the message out that they are doing everything they can to prosecute everyone, including Donald Trump. That's not news to me, but certainly a lot of people on both the right and the left have been saying that it doesn't appear like Donald Trump will be uh, prosecuted. It's too soon to tell, I think. We have not yet seen an entire investigation uh, by the Department of Justice into this, although it certainly seems to be that he, the case that he should be prosecuted. There's 
ample, ample uh, evidence in that from the Jan 6 committee, which has been doing a terrific job. A couple of other quick notes. Uh, I should tell you that our investigation continues when we start in September. There is so much more that we've been able to uncover just in the last few weeks about what happened on January the 6th and the buildup to January the 6th that it's actually mind-blowing. It actually takes you into you know, a whole new dimension. And uh, we can't wait to bring that to you because it's really a fascinating additional layer of complexity and additional layer of intrigue around how America got to the situation it is. And it certainly looks into the foreign world and, and how much foreign influence there was on January the 6th. So uh, that's going to be part of our investigations when we return in middle of August or early September, but only if, only if you support us, if you go to patreon.com forward slash narrative, and we need to still raise quite a bit of money to make sure we can fund the entire season. So that is coming up. I did want to say hello. So that's what I'm here for, just to say hi. Uh, I want to play, play you now the very good interview that we did with Dave Troy and Ann Nelson. It was March of 2021, just a few weeks after the insurrection. And Ann had put together a remarkable piece in the Washington Spectator, identifying how the CNP, the Council for National Policy, was involved in January the 6th. This is not something you've heard anywhere else, probably since or even even during the committee hearings, we've not heard anything about the Council for National Policy's involvement. And yet, in fact, they were involved. We go through a lot of that. And Dave Troy also provides a remarkable history of the CNP. Basically, you know, as you all know, we didn't arrive here just by accident. This is a 40-year plan that's being unveiled on America. And that is why this is proving to be such a, a complex thing to untangle. But let's take a listen now to what we called Extreme Machine. That was the name of the show, exposing the CNP with Ann Nelson and Dave Troy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Narrative on a Tuesday night. I am so excited about tonight's show. We're going to be talking about the Council for National Policy, which sounds like the most boring topic in the world, but I guarantee you it's not. The CNP is one of the most important forces in American politics right now and has been for the last uh, maybe even 40 years. And we're going to learn a lot more about it tonight from Anne Nelson, who wrote the book Shadow Network. Hi, Anne. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you all? I'm great. And uh, Dave Troy's here, a systems analyst who's been doing a lot of great work on Twitter. You guys have been seeing his work on everything from QAnon to CNP. How are you doing, Dave? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Zoe. Great to have you back on. So tonight is exciting because the CNP is one of these secret forces in the whole thing that elected Donald Trump. And it's been my contention, at least, that the system in the American democracy was attacked from the outside, specifically by Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Israel. But of course, that doesn't account for 75 million votes that voted for Donald Trump or the rest of the base, which we've been referring to for the last four years while his administration was in power. And that's because, of course, there is a large following for Donald Trump and this extreme right wing has existed for a long period of time. And it's largely due to the secret organization called the Council for National Policy. Now, Anne, you really exposed what the CNP is all about. Why don't you tell us what it is? The Council for National Policy was founded in 1981 by a group of political strategists who had come out of the Goldwater campaign some religious fundamentalists who were trying to promote ways to keep segregated institutions on a tax-exempt status, and people from the fossil fuels industries who wanted to eliminate environmental regulations and pay as few taxes as possible. And they were very frustrated because after the New Deal, the left had a coalition, liberals had a coalition, and they didn't have an effective coalition. So they studied trade unions and 
church activists and progressives, and they replicated a lot of their strengths on the right. One of their architects, Paul Weirich, made a manifesto that said, we need to create structures on seven areas, education, entertainment, government, business, etc., and take over the culture. So they spent 40 years trying to do that. It's an interesting alliance, I guess, of media, of big business and power. That sort of doesn't exist on the left. But on the right, there is a secret organization, not so secret anymore, that combines all those elements in one. So in other words, if you want to get a message out to all of your base, it's quite easy to do when you have thousands of radio stations, you have a few TV networks, you have all your pieces, all your soldiers in one coordinated army. That doesn't exist on the left, or does it? No, not remotely. They've got a leadership institute that trains individuals. And we just found out that one of the people they trained was Ali Alexander from the January 6th Capitol riots, as well as something like 200,000 other political candidates and campaign managers. They have a network of fundamentalist churches, which promote their voting policies among the congregations in amid religious services. So they're very active in enlisting religious communities for political purposes, even though that is very probably in violation of tax laws. So they also have a network of communications. They have Christian broadcasting. They have right-wing radio shows. And now they have this proliferation of online platforms. All have this unified messaging that get out the vote in critical states at critical moments and can actually swing the elections in our very oddly configured political system. You've mentioned the judges a little bit, but also the impact on the judicial system has been quite remarkable, especially on the Supreme Court, where they've had three Supreme Court confirmations of justices there. That's a huge win for them, obviously. They've got the circuit courts and courts of appeal in the Supreme Court, And under Trump, they were able to ramrod over 200 lifetime judiciary appointments through. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Which is well on the way of transforming our legal system. And what's the goal behind that? I know we'll talk a little bit more about Stop the Steal and some of that a little later on. But what's the goal of having so many judges? What does it do for them? They come out of organizations whose heads belong to the Council for National Policy. So you've got the Federalist Society the Heritage Foundation, and the National Rifle Association, who have been very influential in these appointments. And they want judges who will rule in their favor. And the, I believe that what drives them is money. So the environmental regulations are a big target. Tax law is a big target. They also want power. So that works through voter suppression and gerrymandering. And their window dressing, I believe, uh, in, involves religious issues. So they packaged issues like abortion in a very misleading and dishonest way. But they push that through in order to gather this popular support from the fundamentalist churches. So you think they're willing to give up democracy for money? You think that's as simple as that? I think in their minds, they represent democracy, but they're a shrinking minority in Mm. this country. And a lot of what of the issues that they espouse run directly counter to the majority of public opinion. So they have to figure out how to game the system. And again, our political system is very intricate and not always it's certainly not one man, one vote. Far from it. We've got an electoral college, we've got a Senate, we've got many anti-democratic institutions, 
And they have worked at gaming them to the point where they can assert minority rule. Absolutely. There's a great quote, great only because it's very, refer, very speaking the, the quiet part out loud, that Pete Sessions once said, if the purpose of the majority is to govern, the purpose of the minority is to become the majority. Pete Sessions, a former congressman for the Republican Party, obviously their goal is not to become a big tent. Their goal is to do whatever they can to make sure that their minority stays in power. And that seems to be the goal that they're chasing through the CNP and through other institutions. Now, Dave, you've done some interesting work about the origins of the CNP, because some of it comes out of the intelligence services. Yeah, it's a complicated story. And there's a lot of different through lines that you can pick to study how this came about. And a lot of this comes from reading Anne's work. But in addition to that, in the mid-1970s, there were a lot of concerns about the overreaches within the intelligence community, specifically things that the CIA and Army intelligence were doing to monitor Americans, things that the FBI was doing with relation to the civil rights movement. And so right out of, after Water, Watergate, really, that was really the, the yeah, parallel to Watergate. World. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a thing called the Church Commission that was put into effect in the like 1973, 1975 timeframe that studied what the intelligence community had been up to. And there were a lot of different things, illegal, let's say extra legal assassinations and various kinds of monitoring of Americans. And they put into effect a variety of new restrictions in the form of executive orders and probably some laws and things like that, that basically restricted what the intelligence community could do in terms of monitoring Americans. And so this created a something of a rift within the CIA and the intelligence community where you have to remember that a lot of the folks that formed the CNP were really concerned about fighting communism. So they were concerned about fighting the USSR and China. And they had the opinion that a lot of this restriction that was happening within the intelligence community was coming about due to communist infiltration, which they mostly pinned on the Democratic Party. They felt as though there ought to be the opportunity to continue doing this kind of monitoring, but they would have to do it extra legally and outside of the overview of Congress. So they started, there's a guy named Larry McDonald, who was a congressman out of Georgia, actually represented much the same geography as what Marjorie Taylor Greene represents now. He teamed up with Major General Jack Singlaub, who was a early OSS and CIA veteran, who was also a Jedburg in World War II, which is a very elite sort of special forces group that was in France in the 1940s. And they started this thing called Western Goals, which was operating like a private intelligence agency where they were, yeah, here's the advisory board. So it included such luminaries as George uh, S. Patton, the general who was actually cousin of Larry McDonald's, as well as Roy Cohn. And Roy Cohn, of course, went on to become a famous mentor to Donald Trump and was part of the McCarthy hearings and that whole situation in the 50s. And then, of course, you've got in the upper right there, General John Singlaub, who is just, he turns up in so many different aspects of this story. But at any rate, this Western Goals Group decided what they were going to do was to harvest intelligence that was no longer able to be legally harvested by the CIA and index it. And they bought a big expensive computer and they were pulling in information that they had from the LAPD. They were very interested in Hollywood and stemming the communist threat, which of course was real. You can't deny that there were various kinds of communist threats taking place throughout the 50s and 60s. But these guys took it well into the 80s. And the thing that happened was that Larry McDonald 
died in 1983 when the Korean Airlines 007 flight was shot down over Soviet airspace. Apparently, it strayed into Soviet airspace. And so he died, and that left Singlau primarily in control of Western Goals. And Western Goals ended up being the money laundered conduit that was used to take in private donations from individual donors like Joseph Coors and Ellen Garwood and a variety of others who were funding the basically the Contra operation in Nicaragua, fighting the Sandinistas, who were the leftist rebels that were trying to instantiate a communist revolutionary government. It was Lots kind of, of arms length from the intelligence community. It wasn't entirely independent, this Western goals. Exactly. It was operating, I would say, as a puppet of some people that were previously connected to CIA, some probably within CIA. It's a giant mess. But mm-hmm. the idea being that the congressional controls, like the, I would say that the CIA felt as though they were getting mixed messages because they were on the one hand fighting these kinds of communist things. And then there was an amendment passed called the Boland Amendment that limited the ability for Congress to fund this kind of thing. And so basically they got their funds cut off and they were like, which is it? Do you want us to fight the communists or not fight the communists? And so wow. they decided to continue on their own. But it was so. illegal. This whole thing, Watergate yeah. happened. They get slapped on the wrist. There's a bunch of new legislation that tells them to stop doing this stuff. And they decide to continue to do it for maybe noble reasons, but still they decided to continue. Maybe noble initially, but then it got weird after that. And all of this under George H.W. Bush as well, which is interesting. No, this was largely under Reagan in the mid to late 80s. And then ultimately it was adjudicated under Bush's administration. And it was actually William Barr acting as attorney general under George H.W. Bush that rendered pardons for people like Bud McFarlane and other people, Oliver North. and I mean, uh, George H.W. was at the CIA, the CIA director. Oh, uh, yeah, that was in the late 70s. But yeah, yeah, it was around that period of time when they, after Watergate, he decided to take things on an independent streak, if you will, and start all these organizations. And how did it become the CNP? What happened to turn the Western, what are they called? The Western goals. Well, Western goals. What, how did they turn into the CNP? I don't think it was so much that they turned into them as that they were operating in parallel. So there was yeah. A group called the World Anti-Communist League, which quickly earned a reputation for anti-Semitism. And then Jack Singlaub started the like the U.S. Council for Freedom and Democracy, I think it was called, which was the U.S. chapter of that. And then the Council for National Policy came shortly after that, I believe. And the Council for National Policy was... And Anne, you should correct me if I'm missing a detail here, but it was very much put into place to capitalize on Reagan's presidential victory and the idea that they wanted to very quickly build out both short and long-term strategies to capitalize on the gains that they might be able to make at that time. And Singlaub's so 1981. role in the CNP, did he have a role or was it just a, a parallel a, a role that he's... Singlaub was in on the very early stages of that. I don't know what the whether he was like officially a founder or whatever, but I think, Anne, he was very much part of that circle. I think that's correct to say. He was yeah. a member. And yeah. what, what you had, and, and as I show in my book, Shadow Network, you had the CNP at a very early stage and the executive director raising money for the Contras and inviting the Salvadoran death squad figure, Colonel Roberto Daguison, to Washington for an event. And it's important to remember that I was in Central America. I was in El Salvador and Nicaragua at this, at this time. And you had a lot of people coming through who were Vietnam alumni. And there was this sense that they'd been betrayed into losing the war in Vietnam, 
that the communists were on a roll, that Central America was the next Vietnam, and that they were going to win this one and consolidate the victory with Reagan, because they knew that in terms of the culture, young people and minorities and the majority of Americans were not moving in their direction. And also remember that demographically, the military has traditionally come out of several areas, the South and the West, as well as conservative Catholic communities. So there's a lot of overlap here in terms of interests. And the CNP was special because it brought them together and it meshed their gears so that Mm. they could become operational. So interesting that you say they did that together. And then there's a great line in your book. Let me just pull it up here. So so you said that the Council for National Policies and Influential Coalition of Christian Conservatives, Free Market Fundamentalists and Political Activists, which is really the center of power for uh, for this group and for the GOP in general. GOP is centered around everything that the CNP is centered around. It's, all its policy seems to come from there. All its activism seems to come from there. And all its uh, representatives, so a lot of the representatives, are supported by the CNP. Is that, a, is that an accurate description? Well, it does now because they staged what I call a gradual leveraged buyout of the GOP. Mm. If you go back even... In 10 or 20 years, you get people in the Republican Party like Christine Todd Whitman, who are environmentalists. You get moderates who, Mitt Romney, who look at different models of health insurance. So those figures have been purged and marginalized. And in their place, they've groomed figures like Josh and Tom Cotton, who are fundamentalists and who are very much true believers who do not stray from their party line. In terms of money, because that's always comes down to money, who really backs the CNP? Who are the big money brokers in the CNP? It's an interlocking set of organizations and donors. Some of them are the DeVos family, as in Betsy DeVos's parents and parents-in-law and her brothers, Eric Prince. They've been major donors there. They run the Amway Fortune in Michigan, and the Koch brothers have been funding CNP projects, CNP donors have been funding Coke operations for many years. You newly have the Bradley Foundation out of Mm -hmm. Wisconsin, which has been huge and active and is funding a number of these organizations at a very high level. Then you have individual donors like Foster Fries, and he was the founding donor for the Daily Caller, which is one of their media platforms. So it's also important to realize that there's a lot of sub-organizations under the CNP. There's under, if you look at the Koch, the Koch brothers, they have various institutions underneath them, whether it's ALEC or the Freedom Enterprise, what's it called? The Enterprise, American Enterprise Institute. They have Freedom Works. Those are all part of their world. And then I guess the Mercers are involved in the CNP too. They have been. It's They're not listed in the directories, but several reputable organizations have stated that they were members and their donor pattern. A lot of this work involves plowing through pages and pages of tax records and donor records. And so you see that one hand watches the You have an organization like ALEC, which tries to consolidate their control over state governments in a number of states. And you see these donors coming in and funding ALEC at a very high level. The director of ALEC is a member of the CNP and they interact with the other groups. So it's like a corporation with a lot of different levels that support each other. When um, Donald Trump came on the scene in 2015, did they find him or... Did he find them? It was a marriage of convenience mm-hmm. and something of a rogues marriage. They, their preference was for people like Ted Cruz, 
Marco Rubio. But when Cruz, when Trump won the primaries, they had a difficult choice, which was go with Trump or accept Hillary. And they could not stop Hillary. So they cut a deal with Trump, which worked out for both sides beyond their wildest dreams. Because he was willing to do anything for anybody. So he basically enacted anything that they wanted and they got all their judges as well. So they turned into Trump fans along the way. They gave him a wish list and he was operating in the realm of pure transactional politics. You give me the votes, you give me the money and the boots on the ground. Give me your list of judges. Who cares who's a judge? Give me your list of laws to transsexuals in the Pentagon. I don't care. So he gave them every single thing they wanted and they were delighted. They were thrilled. Dave, this all sounds a little bit like the deep state to me. If, if you have a, an organization with somewhat connected roots to the intelligence community and then you've got, you've got all this happening, it does feel like the deep... I think the better way to think of it is probably long-term planning. Yeah. <laughs> Something like the CNP, you have to remember who influenced like, Paul Weyrich. He was very much influenced by William Lind, who was a military strategist who came up with this idea of fourth-generation warfare. And the idea there is to basically plant the seeds that create long-term competitive advantage, but also get inside of your opponent's ability to observe or detect and react to things. And it's called an OODA loop. If you can move a little bit faster than what your opponent is able to detect and comprehend, then you have this kind of a really strong long-term competitive advantage. And that was really what they were doing. So they were planting people into the culture as, as early as the early 1990s with the idea that those people would be relevant in 10, 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And that worked. And they're still doing the same thing now. And that's a very difficult strategy to come up against and then counter when somebody's been thinking about it for a long time. But this whole deep state thing, you can get into big arguments about where that came from. There's a lot of discussion that it came from like Turkey and other kinds of places where this has been, this, the same playbook has been employed. I think it's worth thinking about this in a global context that a lot of the stuff that we're going through now is not that different than what has happened in other countries, even in, during the Cold War, after the close of World War II. And a lot of the kinds of active measures type things that were detailed in like Ann Applebaum's work in Eastern Europe and Hungary and Poland and Czechoslovakia, those things, it's, they still work. And these are really easy technologies that you can redeploy in this context. We just aren't used to seeing them. So we're like, what? This is new. Yeah. But it's all the same stuff. And, you know, we're living through history again and again. I, I used to work for CBC television and radio. So I've had a very strong affection for Canada. Shadow Network, in one of the final chapters, I quote a Canadian pastor who's been approached by the pastors who are working on the American end of this and laying out their whole approach. And he gave a sermon that was recorded about it. And obviously, the whole idea was that Canada replicate this approach. Then I found that the apps that were used by the Trump campaign, the Family Research Council, and various other NRA, National Rifle Association, all by the same developer, were also used by the conservatives in Canada, the same app template. And then recently, we had a campaign in Canada where you had the activation of young anti-abortion activists who were going door-to-door -door canvassing in Canada during the campaign, which was an absolute parallel to how they work in the United States. I have been in touch with various 
Canadian journalist colleagues begging them to undertake an investigation of this because I think that it's as great a threat to Canadian democracy as it is to the U.S. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, I they're very active in Australia. They were very That's active in the Brexit campaign in the U.K. with the Le Pen operation in France. And once they find the technology that works, they replicate it with their alliances. This is a global network and whatever works sort of one place, they will try to cut and paste it to other countries. But the, in, specifically to Canada, the things that I've seen related to the networks that I've been looking at are Harper, New, and Ezra Levant in particular. And that's somebody mm. to keep an eye on. Absolutely. Ezra's done some mm. real damage to democracy in Canada. Yes. He, there's, the machine here certainly works very hard. They had an attempt at launching their own People's Party, which was going to, meant to look like a Trump party. That failed because it was exposed that the Koch brothers, in fact, supported him, but they, or that party. But there's a network that the Kochs also fund called the Atlas Network, which does a lot of the work around training think tanks and think tank employees into how to become politicians. And it's been used a lot in Latin America to turn some of those countries into these populist Koch party states. And so it's definitely a global thing, but it's something that is actually funded directly by the Koch brothers. And it's a deep threat when you think about democracy in general, there are fewer and fewer countries around the world that are democracies. If, if Canada goes, then the United States is a little bit more lonely on the world stage. And there's only 8% of the world right now that is considered democratic or truly democratic. It's very small compared to what we were used to just a few years ago. A lot of these operations are based out of Alberta and you have the same confluence of the fossil fuels industries and the fundamentalists. And then the Koch brothers own a lot of the oil industry up there in, in Alberta as well. They may be indirectly, but they certainly own a large piece of it. And you wrote this incredible piece in the Washington Spectator about the Stop the Steal event and all the same people and influences that came out of the CNP seem to be present at the Stop the Steal event on January the 6th. I'll show you everyone the cover because it's got a great graphic of, uh, of democracy or just Lady Liberty being stabbed in the back. And you write how the CNP, a Republican powerhouse, helped spawn Trumpism, disrupted the transfer of power and stoked the assault on the Capitol. So... This is quite a serious allegation against the CNP. This is not the kind of stuff they'd normally be involved in. They wouldn't normally be storming the Capitol. But you're saying they, in fact, were involved in every piece of it. That headline was negotiated for several hours in terms of the precision of language. They yeah. stoked the assault. I don't know that they led it. Mm. But what I try to do in the piece with a great deal of documentation, there are many links, and I'm totally transparent about the research. And I show how over a year ago, the Council for National Policy and its affiliates started saying, how do we guarantee Trump wins? And they started out saying, we'll hope to win the popular vote. It's looking pretty good. COVID hits. Well, if we lose the popular vote, how do we guarantee the Electoral College? That starts to erode. And as they get closer and closer to the election, their options shrink and they become more desperate. Then they say already in August, they're looking at the legal solutions of challenging the votes in the states where they have friendly courts that they hope can turn the number of votes in their favor. And finally, through people who are very high ranking members of the Council for National Policy, such as Jenny Beth Martin of Tea Party Patriots, such as Adam Brandon of Freedom Works, Charlie Kirk, Ali Alexander, who's a former member, they organized the protest of January 6th. We're still trying to find out where the line is between the protest and the assault. We, and then more investigation will be required. But what is not in doubt 
is that they sought to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. I took a stab at making a graphic just to explain to people all the connections here. And I may have got some of these names wrong, but if you look at this graphic, you see a sense of all the different entities that relate to the CNP. Now, some of these, you know, are the Federalist Society and the Judicial Crisis Network, which may have been more involved in getting federal judges involved. But almost all the rest of these were in some way or another involved with the Stop the Steal event. And I guess Ed Martin of the Judicial Crisis Network was working with Ali Alexander when he first came up with Stop the Steal? Yes. And there were various partner organizations that organized people to come and participate. There was a huge amount of activity in their areas of online communications. And we don't know to what extent, what percentage of people were there because they were recruited by this network. But we know that multiple organizations organize people to come. And in the case of Charlie Kirk, who's a member of the Council for National Policy, runs Turning Point USA, he had buses that were filled and sent to Washington for the protest, and that money was found to pay for transportation and hotels. And that's also the case for Ginny Thomas, isn't it? The the wife of Clarence Thomas. Wasn't she also involved in sending buses there? She has been very active with Charlie Kirk's organization. She's addressed them. She's collaborated with him on a number of fronts. She had been on his board of directors. And of course, Ginny Thomas is the wife of Clarence Thomas Mm. and a Supreme Court judge. And you could ask whether a Supreme Court justice's wife should be involved in operations like this. In my research, the only time we'd heard of Stop the Steal, or the first time we'd heard it publicly, was when Roger Stone went on Info Wars. Thank you. Wow. There's too much information in my head right now. And that's when he first mentioned the word Stop the Steal publicly. But it actually came up earlier in the CNP, the idea of being, at least of the election being stolen and then being cheated out of a win, actually originated, we think, maybe from the CNP, where they started campaigning, as you say, in August. I think Stop the Steal started well before then, and I don't know exactly when, but it was certainly... I think there's even evidence that it goes back as far as 2016 uh, as a, concept, yeah, as a concept, and then it was brought out of uh, cold storage in 2020. Yeah, all the, the wheels that had to match for that to happen. You had to have the media operations going, you had to have them recruiting people nationally, regionally. You had to have them organized. You had to have the speakers set up and be on message. So that coordination effort is really what the biggest problem is, in my opinion. There were four main plotters, really. There was Michael Flynn, who's building up an army, a digital army. Roger Stone, who brought in the militia. Steve Bannon, who was a strategist. And Alex Jones, who was running propaganda. Then you had Ali Alexander, which was a guy who was involved in the day-to-day operational uh, getting it together and the marketing of it. And then Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell were setting the lie that they could build all this on. But there is also now other names that we could throw in because so many people at the CNP were involved. But before we leave the slide, it's important to mention as well that Michael Flynn is a member of the CNP. It was revealed by the researcher Brent Alpress that Michael Flynn was on, has, is, has been on a roster of CNP employees. That's quite something to think of the man awarded by the Justice Department so that the White House needed to fire him because he might have been compromised by the Russians, that he's working for the CNP in organizing this insurrection. And he's on the same employee roster as Ginny Thomas. Also remarkable that the wife of the Supreme Court Justice could be part of the part of the CNP. This is uncharted territory here, by the way, is, is a slide of them because they work together, or at least she works as part of the CNP action. Can you tell everyone what CNP action is about? Sure. A CNP is officially a nonprofit charity organization, which is not supposed to have any 
role in political campaigns, and therefore it's tax exempt. You could question how it earns this status. I would question it. But they have another branch, which is technically called a 501c4, which is allowed to engage in campaigns. So she is on the board of directors of the lobbying arm of the Council for National Policy, as well as a member of the other organization. Which is incredible when you think that their whole setup is to get something to the Supreme Court to invalidate it, that she's being involved in that whole process seems remarkable. Dave, you've done a lot of work on Mike Flynn and you've been on the show here before talking about his involvement in Q. So is Q related to CNP? Is it part of what CNP is doing? I think that's difficult to know. We're trying to get to the bottom of that. But the one thing that I can say is that there's a high degree of overlap between people connected to the CNP and various kinds of things that we've observed in the Q analysis that's been done. So, for example, there were people involved from Eric Prince's group and Eric Prince's family, the DeVosses and whatnot, very tightly tied to CNP, who were involved with disrupting the pipeline protests at Standing Rock. Now, when we first came across this, we didn't quite know what to make of it because we saw several of the same people involved in that operation that ultimately went on to be involved with the QAnon operation. And you go, why would there be people in 2016 and early 2017 that were connected with Eric Prince's group that went on to become involved with QAnon. That's weird. So it's those kinds of overlaps, people like Lisa Clapier and Sean Stone that got involved in that Standing Rock operation that kind of paint the bigger picture. And if you recall what Ann said about the founding of CNP, some of the founding group was around oil interests and petro interests. So this has been a kind of a longstanding theme. And what we find is that the people that were fighting the Iran-Contra situation, there was a group called the Christic Institute, which is connected with the Vatican. <laughs> and the same Christic Institute morphed into something called the Romero Institute, which was fighting the Eric Prince side of the equation at Standing Rock. And they were intervening on behalf of the uh, Lakota peoples. So when you see these kinds of overlaps that span something like 30 years and you go, what is going on here? And oh my gosh, it's the Vatican involved and it's some of the same interests on both sides and you've got the Koch brothers in the mix. You start to realize that there's some deeper themes of history that are happening here. It's not just like one-off crazy 20, 2016 politics or 2020 politics. These are deeper themes in American and global history that you can start to pick apart and realize that these things persist through time. So you're, that's really interesting because right, Ruth Ben-Ghiat, the author of Strongman, was on the show last week and we specifically looked at, at the parallels between Hitler and Trump and who the backers were and also Mussolini. And then the names that come up are the Koch family, who supported both Hitler in some ways and the Trump family, as well as the Vatican. They're apparent in both. And in terms of Vatican is also more apparent, so I should say, with Mussolini. And then you get Deutsche Bank, which are also part of the story for, right. for both Trump and Hitler. Those are remarkable, really, when you think about it. There's so many banks in the world. There's so many rich families in the world. Why do these keep showing up? And do you have any guesses on why? I think it's possible for sure to go down the rabbit holes and come up with all kinds of interconnecting things through history. And I think one needs to guard against seeing connections where maybe there, there aren't any, especially because over the course of 70, 30 years. It's not the same people. It's different people. We're not responsible for sort of the actions of our forebears and all that. But at the same time, there are these kinds of themes throughout history. If you look at who was opposing communism 
in like the 1970s. But it was people that were more on the right. And then if you go back to the 1930s, the people that were opposing communism were also people that went on to be associated with a lot of the right wing activity in Europe and Nazis and that sort of thing. These are themes that persist through history and these networks. I think Anne was really prescient to formulate her approach to CNP as a network because it is a network. And the thing you have to realize is that these networks don't just instantiate instantly in time. They persist across time. So somebody like Jack Singla, who actually is now 99 years old and still alive, he's been at this since the late 40s and it was obviously as part of the OSS and he landed into Normandy. He's in many ways a very amazing American figure, but at the same time, he also went down this path of being very anti-communist, which, you know, in the 1950s seemed like a reasonable thing to do. And then it morphed into this more very virulent right-wing persona until the point where they realized, they started to think that the communist threat was here in this country. And they started to fight the Democrats as if they were the, the Bolshevik. Narrative is funded by viewers like you. Support our independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. We thank Ann Nelson and Dave Troy for that incredible broadcast that we did just over a year ago, a year which has certainly taken us to a huge investigation of January the 6th. We've done maybe 50, maybe 60, who knows, more episodes just looking at January the 6th, each episode involving a lot of careful investigation into different areas of January the 6th, whether it's the TikTok that we did with Sandy Bacon or you know the incredible work we did with Joe Dempsey throughout the year. But we went into every aspect of January the 6th over the last year, which not only kept the attention on January 6th in everyone's mind, but it also provided a lot of the background and detail that we were able to uh, then watch the committee hearings in the last few weeks and say, hey, we got a lot right. We got most of it right, in fact. And I hope that that work was helpful to you as viewers. And I hope our, that work was helpful to our to the committee members as well, if they took note of it in terms of establishing you know, what was really an incredibly big, broad conspiracy to overturn the election on January the 6th. Um, there is, of course, lots of news today. But one thing that struck me out of the New York Times was this email exchange that was sent to none other than Boris Epstein and amongst others here, Christina Bob, who works for the OAN network. Lee Miller is another person on here whose name you might uh, recognize. But what's interesting about this email is, is, is firstly that Boris Epstein is the guy who CC'd Who's, uh, who's directed at the, at the top of this email too. You know, we know that Boris Epstein has been a longtime influencer of Donald Trump's. We know that he's a, you know, a Russian-born and a Russian-invested guy uh, who obviously is American as well now, but uh, who has a lot of influence over the Trump White House. I've, of course, remembered that he's been involved in January the 6th, but until I saw this email, it didn't occur to me about how involved he may have been. There were also pictures of him with Rudy Giuliani and and even John Eastman at the Willard Hotel. It's fascinating when you realize how many Russians there are involved in January the 6th. And it's one of the big investigation things that we're going to be keeping our eye on is it's not just the people who were involved in, you know, crashing through those doors on January the 6th. It's the foreign influence machine that was built around this. And when we're back in mid-August or September, assuming we raise all the funding we need, we'll be providing the biggest investigation yet. It's provided a whole new dimension of investigation into January the 6th, which you've not seen anywhere else. You've not seen that in the committee hearings, and you certainly uh, are not going to see it in any courtroom because a lot of it is uh, foreign espionage, and it's really fascinating. 
that's all coming in a very big way in in January the sixth, and it's what I've been doing. Uh, we've been investigating those those things, and it's interesting here as you look. And this last paragraph here, as they basically confess in bold letters here that by coming to him, i.e., we would just be sending in fake electoral votes to Pence so that someone in Congress can make an objection when they start counting votes and start arguing that fake votes should be counted. This is an actual acknowledgement by them that they knew they were sending in votes that were um, or electoral slates that were fake that would not be accepted. But the idea was to disrupt the transfer of power. And as we heard Mary Garland say earlier on, that is what they're looking at, is the people who were involved in disrupting the transfer of power. Those are the people that may be criminally liable here. It sure looks like to me like they knew it was illegal uh, and they still thought, let's do it anyhow. And they knew it was fake. There's not a chance in the world that they thought that any of these electors were actual electors. Uh, they were just looking for trouble. And in the next... Um, they go on to say, a little too late perhaps, that, that alternative votes is probably a better term than fake votes. Also, it sounds like Kelly Ward and the rest of the electors would be very much into the idea. Kelly's thought it to try to keep it under wraps until Congress counts the votes on Jan 6th. So we try to surprise the Dems and the media with it. I tend to agree with her. Now, Kelly, of course, a former news anchor in Arizona, and it appears to me like she is going to be winning. Um, you know, this is really tragic stuff when you have people who are so conducting themselves illegally, still running for office and then winning. It tells you that America is not anywhere near uh, where we should be in terms of expunging this thing that, that uh, Donald Trump and the CNP brought upon us. In other news, you know, it's interesting that Mark Short, the chief of staff of uh, Mike Pence, was uh, testifying before the grand jury. Now we know there's a grand jury. We know there's an investigation. Those people who said that Mary Garland should be doing more, he is doing more. He, these are the investigations that uh, we've been talking about. I am a little sick and tired of, of people on the left criticizing Mary Garland, whose reasons that seem unreasonable. I mean, we know these investigations took take long. We know these investigations, uh, there's nothing been as big as this, frankly. This is the biggest investigation we've ever had in the DOJ, of course. Well, just of course, without doubt, it's going to take a long time to do a proper investigation. There's been a grand jury paneled. That's what they're doing. They're interviewing people like Mark Short. And they also interviewed another of um, these uh, Pence insiders. He's counsel, Greg Jacobs. And uh, he previously testified before the committee about a meeting that he had on January the 4th with these same people, with the same Eastman and, and all these other characters uh, from, from the insurrection. And he told them during that meeting on the 4th, I think I raised the problem that both of Mr. Eastman's proposals would violate several provisions of the Electoral Count Act. Mr. Eastman acknowledged that that was the case, that even what he viewed as the more politically palatable option would violate several provisions. I mean, we are talking about an incredibly serious foreknowledge and acknowledgement that they were doing something illegal and a premeditation that they were willing to do that illegal thing, which, you know, stuns me that these people sort of would jump off the cliff as they did for Donald Trump, but they did, and we shall see what happens. I do think that we need to give Mary Garland a little bit of time here to sort out through all of this. You know, there's a lot that we're learning. And yet it's also important that we stay focused on the future because there is, you know, still a lot of chaos in the world. And there's still a lot of people in America who still very much support this Christian nationalism and who want to see America uh, divided into a state, uh, which is, you know, Christian nationalist on the one hand and another state um, or other states that are more secular. And nothing could be more horrendous for the United States of America than being uh, so uh, broken up. In fact, we've seen 
civil war before we know what it looks like. It's certainly not something we want to see again in, in America. Um, I, uh, I should note that a lot of these new information that we're getting about these fake slate of electors, um, you know, they all tie into Ginny Thomas as well, which we spoke about there uh, in our interview uh, in March 2021. I mean, it's kind of amazing that we were covering the stuff that people are talking about now in, in 2021, in March. And, and you know, I remember looking up Ginny Thomas, who's Ginny Thomas? And it just tells you how far ahead narrative is of everyone else and how this kind of detailed uh, investigative work that we do, which I love because I'm a geek and many of you are geeks just like me and you, you love digging into it. You know, this is the kind of stuff that you find all the truth in. If the devil is in the details, so is the truth. And uh, we've been able to uncover in the last year every aspect of January the 6th and more than you've heard just on the committee hearings or elsewhere. And that is why we so desperately need so many of you to join us in our mission to continue doing this kind of reporting. Please go to patreon.com forward slash narrative. It's 10 bucks a month. That's the recommended rate, but there's also a five buck rate there. We really do need the money. It's, you know, it's, it's impossible to survive. It's impossible to continue to produce this kind of content. And it, there's all sorts of costs associated with this. And in order to, to spend the amount of time and energy to make it worth our while and worth everybody's while and to make sure that all the contributors get paid and everyone gets what they need to, we absolutely do need your support. We can't continue to do this for free. It's just not feasible, although I certainly uh, will continue to try as much as I can. So the people that have already contributed, we're so thankful to you. There's several hundred of you that have come in there and, and supported us and have done so from day one. I guarantee you that a lot of the details, a lot of the information that we take for granted today, people only know because you contributed those $10 to narrative. So hopefully others will join. We do need a lot of you to please join. So if you're out there and uh, can spare the $10 a month, I know it's a lot at these times, please consider doing so at uh, patreon.com forward slash narrative. We are on hiatus. I'm not meant to be here. I shouldn't be on the air. People tell me I, I shouldn't stay off until until we absolutely are ready to come back. But I couldn't resist coming on tonight just to say hello to all of you. Missed you guys a lot. And uh, I look forward to um, an incredible season ahead. I got to tell you, the stuff we're finding out is sensational. The, the biggest investigation that we have probably undertaken involving January the 6th continues. And it is going to blow your mind what we discovered about how January the 6th was launched and evolved. And uh, many other investigations that are you know, underway as well. Can't wait to get the season started. And we look forward to having you here with us. So um, we shall see you soon. I'll be back with a, another episode, maybe in a week or so, another on-call presentation. If you have any favorites that you want me to replay, please let me know. If you have any other thoughts, comments, ideas, please let me know in the comments below, or you know how to get a hold of me through Patreon or on Twitter. And on that note, I want to wish all of you a very good night. I hope you're enjoying your summer. It has been a scorcher, but it has been an incredibly lovely scorcher at that too. You guys have a great uh, evening and so good to see you. And uh, we'll see you again soon. 